you were to Google or look up the phrase double entendre, you would find that it means that something has more than one meaning, a double meaning, whether it's a word or a phrase. And the title of today's message is a double entendre. It, it fits that description because the title I want you to think about is, is this question, how far is too far? We've been talking about relationships. So whether you're a, a parent or a grandparent, whether you're a teenager or a young adult, this is relevant in your life. We are created for relationships. We live in a world in which we interact with other people in relationships. We often pursue that ultimate human relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. And so it's important that we regularly and periodically look into God's word to see how he guides and directs us about relationships. In this series, we've looked at several relationships. We've called this love stories because we're looking at relationships from Scripture. Most recently, we looked at Ruth and Boaz, and we saw that a relationship really must begin with an intentional commitment. Because before Ruth, this widow was prepared to be married to what would become the love of her life and put her in the lineage of Jesus, she had to understand commitment. She had to know what it meant to turn to her mother-in-law and say, don't urge me to leave you or to turn from following after you. Where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. I mean, that's commitment. Death till death do we part. And that kind of fashioned her with character and with confidence and then ultimately have that covenant relationship with a man named Boaz. Then we looked at the lives of Abraham and Sarah a couple weeks ago, and man, they were messed up, weren't they? I mean, they could have been on the Jerry Springer show. I mean, again, just a few words define their relationship, but words like uh, fear. And you probably know that fear is not a good thing in a relationship. If you're driven in a relationship by fear, it's going to end up in, in a bad way. Abraham was so afraid of what other people would think or do to him that he actually told on two different occasions other men that his wife was his sister. And those other men pursued a relationship with her. I mean, how messed up is that? And then we see in another occasion how flesh just got into their relationship. And, and flesh just speaks to that sinful sinfulness within us as, as men or women. And, and we talked about how uh, Sarah wanted to have a baby more than anything, but she, had, she had, had not been able to conceive. And so she concocted this fleshly, this humanly idea, hey, hey Abraham, why don't, you, why don't you have a baby with my maid? I'm sure that will go over well. It was a great idea until it was a bad idea. <laughs> and so uh, that happened. Abraham was with the maid and she conceived, and a baby was born, and, and Sarah became very jealous. And so in that story, we saw that ultimately the, the hope for a relationship is not fear or flesh, it's faith, and that after a long, long life, God gave them faith and actually answered their prayers. He gave them the, the desires of their heart. And the reason I want to spend a minute there before we get started today is because some of you need to hear that. You're at a relational crossroads where you're, you're being tempted either to give up or to go forward in a direction that you know is not honoring to God, and I'm begging you in faith just to trust him because he is a God who provides. Yeah. Now, we began with Adam and Eve. I, I figured that was a pretty good place to start since that's the first people, right? <laughs> and the first marriage, the first family. But we learned some things there that really are important for every relationship. We, we discovered the significance of identity, that if you don't know who you are, if, if you're not clear in your identity, you're not prepared to be in a relationship with another person. And as a pastor for almost 30 years, I would just tell you, most of the relationship mess that takes place happens because one or more of the people in the relationship were really insecure in their identity, that they were created in the image of God, that they bore the image of Christ in their lives. And then we talked about authority. And, and I've just reminded you again and again that in, in relationships, there is authority. And for us, the Bible is our authority. And it's the, the, the guideline and the guardrails for our life. And man, I would just challenge you, parents and grandparents and, and young adults and teenagers and children, understand this. God has given you his word to be an authority, to, to be a guideline and a guardrail in your life. Don't be afraid to stand for what 
His authority has already, has already said. Most of our challenges when it comes to relational dysfunction take place because we've stepped outside of the bounds of his authority. But then we said, you still got to be compatible and look for that right person. You still got to be intentional. We've, we've been learning so much about relationships. And today, we're going we're gonna to dive in a little deeper. Because we're going to look at a relationship that is not the kind of love story that you would imagine. In fact, it, it didn't be, begin very well. It began in a, a pretty bad way. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. But before we get into that story, I, I want to share just a couple of other things as a way of disclaimer. First of all, um, and one of the reasons I think, and I'm, I'm saying this as a, as a church baby, I, I grew up in a pastor's home and church all my life. You've heard me say I had a drug problem. I was drugged to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Wednesday. I mean, I, I've been in church forever. And one of the challenges in church is that we try to sugarcoat things and, and we don't even tell the truth about things that Scripture speaks very clearly on. And so my first disclaimer is just to tell you that I'm going to speak very straightforward about some things in this story. And so if, if you're afraid you, you'll be offended or, or you have children that you don't want to hear this message, just be forewarned. Secondly, I would say to you that, um, man, anytime I talk about brokenness, in scripture, which is what this story is all about, I'm very much aware of my own brokenness. And, and I, I just need you to know that though I'm a pastor and, and though our stage is a little elevated, man, I'm on your level. And, and though I'm called by God, man, I'm a sinner that's a trophy of God's grace. And, and I wouldn't be here were it not for what God has brought me through. And, and so I need you to understand that. And then finally, I would just say, Man, as a communicator, my favorite way to teach God's Word is just to open and just go kind of through verse by verse. It's called expositional teaching, and, and that's easier for me. I enjoy that. This is more of a topical message because we're, we're concluding this series, and we need to deal with some topics that we've not addressed. And, and so just be aware of that. I'm, I'm going to jump around a little bit to try to keep you engaged. It's going to be heavy at some moments. It's going to be lighter in some other moments, but I pray that God uses this to speak in our lives. Let me begin with a question. What do you think God ultimately wants from you? And the reason this is important, because if you are going to have a relationship with another person, you first better understand what's going on with me. Most of the problems that I see in people's relationships deal with the fact that they're a big part of the problem, <laughs> and, and they're not willing to deal with themselves. So what does God want from you? I, I think that's outlined in 2 Chronicles 16, 9. It says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. So what does God want from you? What does he want from you? He wants your heart. He wants all of you. So when we talk about a relationship, we talk about love, we say it's matters of the heart. Well, the most important thing about your heart, all of you, is that all of you is given to all of God. That's what he wants. That's why when we talk about relationships in a marriage, we say when the husband is pursuing that relationship with Christ and the wife is pursuing that relationship with God, Christ, ultimately they both draw closer to God and they draw closer to one another. If they're not pursuing that, not only do they miss out on that intimacy with God, they probably are not going to have that relationship with one another that they should have. Now, because God wants your heart, when the children of God, the people of Israel, when they wanted a leader, God made it clear, you need a leader who has the right heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14, he says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people. So when God is looking at you, he wants you to give him your heart. When he's looking for people to make a difference in this world, he's looking for people whose heart is right. And so the people wanted a king. God gave them King Saul. His heart seemed to be right until it wasn't. He walked away from God. And so God orchestrated the anointing of a new king. And something interesting takes place in 1 Samuel 16. This is the first time we're introduced to King David. 
The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David was looked at as a man from the beginning, as a man who had a heart for God. That's important. We know what God wants. I would ask you, where are you? Does God have your heart today? Have you yielded control of of that deepest part of you to all that he is? Well, that's the first time we see David. Let me introduce you to the first time we see Bathsheba, because this is significant. 2 Samuel 11, verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one, this is a servant, said, Is it not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? The first time we hear about the name Bathsheba, you know what we hear? Bathsheba is another man's wife. Now, this was interesting because as you look throughout Scripture, you usually don't see a woman described by her husband's name. You you see a woman often described by her father's name, the lineage she came from. But in this case, this servant was, was so mindful of the danger with which David was about to get into. In other words, the fire that he was playing with and he was about to get burnt. That this servant said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's another man's wife. That's the context for this relationship. David has now been king for a number of years. He's experiencing great success. And I would just say to you that in your life, right where you are, when things are going well, Beware, (laughs) there is an enemy. He's roaming to and fro. He's seeking whom he may devour. And it's in seasons like those that he will show up and tempt you. And he will begin to distract you or even destroy you. So as we look in 2 Samuel 11, it only takes five verses to show us how quickly things turn bad in David's life. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and said, Is And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. What a story. The whole trajectory of David's existence would change on this incident. What happens after this? David realizes he's in hot water. He's blown it. Have you ever had those moments? You've gone too far. You've done something you shouldn't have done. Now what? What does he do? He begins to try to cover it up. So he calls for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He knew who he was. Because Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He was in David's inner circle. He was a close friend. And I would just tell you after, again, almost three decades of ministry, most of the time, inappropriate relationships take place among people that are in close contact with one another. Unfortunately, often close friendships. So David seeks Uriah, and he, he has a plan. He tells Uriah, hey, I, uh, <laughs> I think you are doing such a good job. You need to go just enjoy some time with your wife. I need to spell this out with you. David was bringing Uriah back so that Uriah would have sexual relationship with his own wife so that when he found out she was having a baby, he would think it was his. But listen to the character of this guy. 
David sends him to go be with his wife. David goes to bed. When he wakes up the next day, guess what? Uriah has stayed at the palace. And he says to the king, hey, I couldn't go be with my wife when none of the other soldiers could go be with their wives. That would be awful. So David, man, he has another plan, and his other plan is to get Uriah so drunk that Uriah won't have a choice. And Well, that fails too. So Uriah goes back to battle. And then David only has one more plan, and that's to kill Uriah. You see the slippery slope of sinfulness? You see what happens when we try to cover one sin with another? Someone has said, if you find yourself in a hole, that's time to stop digging. David didn't understand that, so he called his general. He said, put Uriah on the front line. Can you imagine that conversation? The general knew this was one of his friends. What do you mean put him on the front line? If we put him on the front line, he'll get killed. David said, put him on the front line. And they put him on the front line. And Uriah was killed. Word gets back to Bathsheba, and she begins to mourn the loss of her husband. And then we see this in verse 27. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This man that God had chosen because of his heart had made a decision that displeased the Lord. I want to give you just a a few words that speak to what we need to be aware of from this love story. And the first word is danger. In every relationship in your life, but particularly in that marriage relationship, you must learn to be aware of the warning signs, the danger signs that keep you from going down a path you should never go down. In this particular setting, we see that David had taken some steps that set himself up for disaster. Number one, he was idle. Did you hear that as I read through the verses? When all the other soldiers were at war, David was back home at the palace. While they were on the battlefield, he was in the bedroom. He wasn't doing what he should have been doing. I look back at over 50 years of life and my worst decisions have taken place when I was somewhere I never should have been, doing something I never should have done. And that's true of you too. You put yourself in a situation you shouldn't be in with more time on your hands than you have. And you're opening yourself for disaster. Someone has said idleness is not just the absence of activity, but it's activity with no purpose. He wasn't just idle, but he was also isolated. He was by himself. There were not others around him to keep him accountable. The Puritan Samuel Johnson says, if you're idle, you better not be solitary. And if you're solitary, if you're alone, you had better not be idle. David didn't care. He saw himself above accountability. Do you have accountability in your life? Is anybody asking you the the tough questions? Several years ago, a study was done of pastors who had committed sexual immorality. About 200 pastors in this particular study, and it was found all of them had the same four things in common. Two of these things we've just mentioned in David's life. The others were there too, I'm sure. First, all of these pastors said that they had grown cold in their relationship with God. They were not spending regular time in God's word and devotion. They weren't in the Bible and they weren't praying. Secondly, every one of these pastors said they had put themselves in a situation they should have never been in. They allowed themselves to be alone with a woman and maybe in an inappropriate counseling setting or, or maybe riding in a car or maybe in a mill. Thirdly, They had no one asking them the tough questions. There was no accountability in their life. And then finally, every one of them said, well, that could never happen to me. But it did. David was in that category. 
He was idle. He was isolated. And he let his imagination go wild. Now, I want you to understand the setting here. David was at the highest point in the city. The palace looked over the whole city. So David would not have just seen where Bathsheba was bathing. He could have seen everything in the city. And he sees this woman, frankly, in what is most likely a ceremonial bath. Again, not to be crude, but just to be clear, the Bible says that this was a time of cleansing from her, of ceremonial cleansing, because her body was unclean as it would be once a month. It's in that setting that David loses control of his thoughts. Jesus said this in Matthew 26. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. See, this is that part where some of us say, well, bless God, I'll tell you what, that's one thing I would never do. Yeah, don't ever say that. Don't ever tee yourself up that way to fall into that hole. Given the right circumstance, given the right situation, given the right bad day or the argument in your marriage, each and every one of us is capable of everything out there. You better believe it. Spirit might be willing, but our flesh, it's weak. That's why Paul would go on to say in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, take every thought captive. Ask God to control your thought life. But David didn't do that. His imagination went wild. He began to say, that's what I want. And then he initiated. He acted on his temptation. And I want to be clear. This is where things went awry. All of us are tempted, right? Is temptation a sin? It's not. Not according to Scripture. Listen to what James, the half-brother of Jesus, says in James 1.14. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So these desires within me, legitimate desires, I'm tempted to meet them in illegitimate ways. Then desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. So when I act on that desire, then I begin to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So David makes a decision in the heat of the moment. And in the heat of the moment, that one decision changes the trajectory of his life. Are you prepared to make the right decisions in the heat of the moment? Do you have defenses that keep you from making the wrong decisions in the heat of the moment? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Did you know there was a way out for David? And there's a way out for you. Again, I've been doing this a while. A lot of times I've heard things like this. Pastor, you don't understand you don't understand how bad my marriage is. You, you don't understand just the setting I was in. It was, it, it was the perfect setting for me to go in that wrong direction. You don't understand what I've been putting up with. And, and you're right. I don't live in your home. I, I'm not walking in your shoes. But I know this. No temptations is common to man in, in which God has not provided a way out just as he did for David. So what you've got to begin to ask is, what are the guidelines? What are the guardrails in your life that point you toward that way out? I want to answer the question we ask in the title of this message. Because I think it speaks to this moment in David and Bathsheba's relationship. How far is too far? So this is relevant if you're a child or a teenager or a young adult that's unmarried. It's relevant if you're in a marriage relationship. It's relevant if you're a parent or a grandparent and you may be talking to those who will one day be married. How far is too far? What's okay to do? How far can I go in a physical relationship and in a relationship with another person? Here's the first thing. It's too far when it's wrong. <laughs> We complicate things that 
don't have to be complicated. So I told you we have the authority of Scripture. What does Scripture say about a sexual relationship? According to Scripture, you've only got one alternative. This is not me. This is the Word of God. According to Scripture, the only appropriate place for a sexual relationship is between one man and one woman in the context of a marriage relationship, period. That's the only okay... That's not me pointing out one group or, or one person that says, well, what about my feelings? Or I feel like I was born to, to think this way. No, no, no. Either I base my life on the authority of Scripture and let that be the guidelines and the guardrails, or I don't. And just this morning, did, did you know that just this morning, I, I read that one in six of the current generation of students, Generation Z it's called, one in six consider themselves L-B-G-Q-T. I think I got it all right. Now, why is that relevant? We've got truth. So you've got to decide in your life, am, am I going to base my life on the truth of Scripture? Am I, I going to base my life on what Scripture says is what, what's right and what's wrong? And when I do that, all of these emotions that we feel in the heat of the moment, they don't matter. For example, um, I, I've, I've, I've had people look at me and tell me this as their pastor. Pastor, I know this doesn't look right, but I'm confident that God brought me together to be with this person. Let me just tell you something. It will never be God's will for you to be with another man's wife or another woman's husband. That's not the way it works. God's not going to do that in your life. Don't suppose things on him that are not from him. Sexual fulfillment is a legitimate God-created desire. But that desire has to be met and fed in a legitimate way. David was without excuse. It was too far. Let me give you a second thing. How do I know when it's too far? It's too far when it's unwanted. It's too far when it's unwanted. And again, this may be in a dating relationship, but guess what? This could be in a marriage relationship. If any kind of activity is not wanted by the other person, then it's gone too far. So remember how I told you that David um, was up at the highest point in the city? I've, I've actually stood at what would have been his palace, and you look down on the city. The other reality is that David was king. And you know what that means? Everybody in his kingdom had to do what he said. I, I remember hearing about this and thinking about Bathsheba out taking a, a bath in the public and, and maybe even reading that and thinking, well, man, how could any man withstand that temptation? She's out there on the roof taking a bath. When you read the story, th this wasn't a sexual time for her. This is a time of cleansing and probably not an enjoyable time of cleansing for her. And yet in that moment, the king commanded that she come to him. It's an abuse of power. Abuse of authority. It was unwanted. How do you get help if these things are kind of weighing heavy on you right now? Let me just give you a couple of practical ways before I move on. Number one, you need boundaries in your life. You, you keep from going too far in the heat of the moment by having boundaries outside of that moment. So let me just make it real practical. Some of the ones that Kimberly and I have, we both know that, that we won't be alone with a person of, of the opposite sex. And we both know that anything in our digital footprint is available for the others to see. And that means our text, our emails, our calls. We're on Facebook together. You say, man, that's kind of silly, Pastor. Well, I'm just telling you, 30 years, in the last 20 years, dozens of affairs 
that have begun because of a high school or college relationship rekindled through, get this, Facebook. Now, those of you that are younger than me and, and our teenagers and our, our college students, man, it's way past that, isn't it? There are now digital apps that are created just for the purpose of you hooking up and having an illicit relationship. So, I mean, obviously, part of your boundaries is don't have those apps. <laughs> just don't do that. That's wrong. Then there's accountability. Accountability only works if, if you want it. I remember hearing years ago uh, in the late 1990s, you know, in some ways, the president of the United States is the most accountable person on the planet. Everybody knows everything that they do. And yet we know from history that even the president of the United States can push that accountability aside and do whatever they want to even in the Oval Office. But you need to have those persons that can ask you the tough questions. What are some of the tough questions? Are you being faithful? Are you honoring Christ with your thought life? Are you looking at porn? You know what's crazy? Back when I started my ministry, an overwhelming percentage of the people that looked at porn were men. Now that's changed. It's still a little more men. But now women are viewing porn almost as much as men. And psychologists as well as medical professionals have told us that it's, it's literally rewiring the brain. And not only calling, causing relational dysfunction, it, it causes damage that is hard to be undone. Are you putting yourself in situations you shouldn't be in? All of these are questions of accountability. But before we move on from this, I, I want to address something else that's a problem among many professing Christians. I grew up in churches, as I've mentioned, and man, I think often because of that, we're taught so much about purity that, that sometimes a sexual relationship is looked at as it's something that's hush-hush and can never be dealt with. That's not the biblical way either. In, in fact, God created this relationship. That's why I think it's interesting that, that the second son of David and Bathsheba... Solomon, he wrote more about sex than anyone else in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Listen to what he says in Proverbs 5. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now that's poetic, but it's pretty straightforward. Sexual pleasure is part of God's purpose. But sexual pleasure has a right place. It's that marriage relationship. But sexual pleasure is something that it's okay to be passionate about. <laughs> be intoxicated with her love. So we've been heavy for a few minutes, so I want to lighten it up just a moment and, and do something I've done in the past, but give you just some practical application because some of you are looking for a path forward and particularly if you are in a marriage relationship, you, you, things can grow cold and, and you want to say, you know, what, what can I do to help things out and to encourage this right kind of physical relationship? So men, I, I'm going to give you a list. Now it's, it's a list and a long list, but this is a list of things you need to do if, if you want your wife uh, to be satisfied and, and to be ready for this uh, physical intimacy in marriage. All right? You ready, guys? Uh, so this works every time. I mean, this is a, a list. So here's what you need to do, how to satisfy a woman every time. You caress and praise and pamper and relish and savor and massage and empathize, serenade, compliment, support, feed, tantalize, bathe, humor, placate, stimulate, stroke, console, purr, hug, coddle, excite, pacify, protect, phone, correspond, anticipate, nuzzle, smooch, toast, minister to, forgive, drip, dry, knead, 
puree, fluff, fold, ingratiate, indulge, wow, dazzle, amaze, flabbergast, enchant, idolize, worship, and then go back, Jack, and do it again. Now, I could go on and on, but that's a pretty good list. Ladies, I don't want to leave you out. So I've also comprised a list of, of what you need to do if, if you want to satisfy your man every time. All right, the exhaustive list here. Uh, you do this, it's gonna, he's going to be ready for that physical intimacy every time. Okay, here we go. Show up naked. That's it. That's it. That's all you got to do. I wanted to take you a little bit on this emotional roller coaster because I want you to understand this is a problem. And it's a problem because there is this legitimate desire that's being met in illegitimate ways. The solution is that this legitimate desire is met in the legitimate way that God designed. Back to David and Bathsheba. So you had the danger. Then you had disaster. Disaster took place when David tried to cover up his sin. And it's also interesting to me that, that it's Solomon who wrote these words. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And, and I would just say, man, if we've gone through this first portion of the message and the danger lights are flashing or, or maybe it's beyond danger, it's turned from yellow to red and you've done some things that are dishonoring to God or are not right in your marriage relationship, the time to stop is now. Stop covering that up. Because here's what I know. What we cover will one day be uncovered. But what we uncover can be covered by his grace. Amen. That's who God is. I read these words of Jesus yesterday. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light and what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So, so stop covering up. And, and that brings me to this last word. You have danger, then you had disaster. And you know some of you are in the danger zone. <laughs> some of you are in the disaster area right now. Where I want to get you is to devotion. Because an amazing thing happened as a result of God's grace. The Bible teaches us that about a year had gone by. And God sent his prophet, the man of God, to King David. A man named Nathan. And Nathan looks at David and he proposes this story. And the story is about a rich man in the kingdom that takes advantage of a poor man in the kingdom. And the rich man who had all these sheep and all these cattle and anything he wants, how he went and he found the one little lamb that the poor man had and he stole it. And Nathan, the man of God, looked at David and he said, what do you think we should do to that rich man? And David says, you go get him right now, I'll I'll take care of him. And then in verse 7, Nathan looks at David and he says, David, you are that man. That's you. And an amazing thing happens here in 2 Samuel 12. King David, the guy who started out with a heart for God, and he blew it. He blew it big time. He realized that he had not gone so far that he could not outrun the reach of God's grace. He recognized he was wrong. And so in verse 13, it says, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord's put away your sin and you shall not die. If we had time, I'd tell you all about the consequences of this moment. The son that was conceived, that child did die. And to be honest, David's other children it was like there was generational sinfulness because of what he had done. It was a family mess. But in this moment, what I want you to get is in David's individual life, there was a way back. Some of you are here, you're in the danger zone. 
you're, you're playing with fire. There, there are people that are listening to this message and, and you're, you're either already in an emotional relationship you shouldn't be in or maybe it's gone physical, but you're playing with fire. Some of you, it's already the disaster area. Your marriage is hanging on by a thread or it's gone or it's just a disaster. How do you get to devotion? How do you realize that you're not too far gone for God? There's several passages in Scripture that David speaks to this season of his life. One of those is Psalm 32. You should go read that. But I want to read a little bit from Psalms 51. It's believed that this is David's prayer after that meeting with Nathan. Listen to what he says. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold within me a willing spirit. And some of you, you've let that danger zone lead you to disaster. And now there's all kind of problems. You've got depression. You, you're discouraged. You're probably physically ill. All these things that are coming into your life because of this. How, how do you turn back. David gives us a guideline. He gives us an outline. First, you got to confront the problem. You got got to realize it. And for some of you, you look in every relationship in your life is a nightmare. And if that's the case, that might be a clue that you're the problem. Confront the problem. Then, then even in the midst of that, David was able to see the goodness of God. And, and after you get heavy like we've been, sometimes you just got to take a step back and say, thank you, God, that you've not abandoned me. Thank you that you're present. Thank you that you're the creator and I can see evidence of you all around me. And then I begin to confess clearly and completely. Confess means I agree with God about my sin. Confess is more than saying I'm sorry. Confess is a recognition that I've, I've violated the holiness of God. And, and that's why David says, against you and you only have I sinned. Do you understand that? God's the only one who's holy. Of course he had sinned against Bathsheba. Of course he had sinned against Uriah. He had, he had sinned against the whole nation of Israel. But God's the only one who's holy. And then he embraced his brokenness. Are you broken? Are you remorseful over your sin? Man, we've raised five children, and it's not unusual we have a discussion about something that's been done wrong. You know, for example, my, my little princess, she does something wrong, and I see her lips begin to quiver, and tears begin to come down her eyes, and she'll go, I'm sorry. And sometimes I'll say, no, you're not. She'll say, what do you mean? And I'll say, you're sorry you got caught. But I don't believe you understand that what you did was wrong. So this week we had that conversation. I kind of disciplined her over something. And her chin began to quiver. Her tears began to come down her eyes. And she said, I'm sorry, Dad. I said, no, you're not. She said, yes, I am. I'm not just upset that I got caught. I realized what I did was wrong. <laughs> Are you broken? When you get to that place, then you can seek God's presence. Oh, God, don't let your presence run from me. Just give me, give me more of you, God. See, if you're not broken, then you're just going to hide from God. You're going to be like Adam and Eve in the garden, covering up with fig leaves. But when you're broken, you say, God, I need you now more than ever. And then you can cry out, restore the joy of my salvation. Just rest in the restoration of God. That's what I want for you today. 
That's what I'm going to ask you to, to come and, and commit your life to in the next few minutes. But before I do that, let me just make it real practical before I pray with you. See, there's application of this in our interpersonal relationships too. There's some words you need to learn to say that will help you get through these seasons of brokenness. You ready for them? I'm going to say them first. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Not, not, I'm sorry, but you know. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Now, this is some of the hardest stuff the preacher's ever going to tell you to do, right? So we're going to practice. You ready? Let's say it together. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. One more time. I'm sorry I was wrong. Please forgive me. Listen, some of you have multiple broken relationships. And for some of you, right now in this moment, the Holy Spirit of God is putting a name in your mind. And one of the first things you need to do when you leave today is call that person and you need to say those three phrases. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And listen, you you don't need to explain it. If that's a violated relationship, if it's broken, they're going to know. All you got to say is, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Well, you know what's great? Listen to what the Bible says about David in 1 Kings 15. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything the Lord commanded him in all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Isn't it great that David learned enough that he corrected the course of his life. And he did that so much so that when he's referred to in the New Testament, in Acts 13, this is what it says. And when they had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. Do you understand that? I know you're not a seminarian or a Bible scholar. But after the mess up, after the disaster, the Holy Spirit of God described David as a man after God's heart. What does God want from you? He wants your heart. And no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what a disaster you've made, You've not gone too far for his grace. (laughs) And that's because one came in the lineage of David that made a way for you and me. His name is Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to do something that we don't do every week when we gather I'm going to invite you to publicly respond to what God is calling you to do in your life. So please listen carefully. It's very likely that some of you are here and you've never begun a relationship with Christ. And in this room in particular, people walked up and down these aisles yesterday praying that you would be here and that the day would be the day of your salvation. Here's what the Bible says. You're separated from God because of your sin That sin is going to be punished by death if it's left unaddressed. And that means you'll be separated from God forever. But God doesn't want that. And so he he sent Jesus to die as your punishment. To offer you forgiveness. To show you grace. But there's got to be a moment where you trust Jesus. That's the moment of your salvation. And so just a moment. When we stand. And we begin to sing. Others are going to be coming for different reasons. But if you've never begun a relationship with Christ, I'm going to ask you to come and take the hands of a pastor who's standing at the end of these aisles and simply to say to them, I need to have a relationship with Jesus. Or maybe say, I need to be saved. But there's a lot of us here who have some other business we need to do. Some of you here have gotten into that danger zone or things have become a disaster. And, and you need to drive down a spiritual stake today where you're saying, enough, I, I'm on my way back. I've, I've not gone too far. 
and, and you need God's help, maybe you need to pray with one of the pastors who are standing here even now and, and ask them, just would you pray with me about this relationship or this season in my life? Your parents and grandparents and you're watching children or grandchildren struggle and maybe you just want to come and kneel and just pray and God protect my my, my lineage. Maybe, you know, here's the fact. A lot of us, we recognize our brokenness. Maybe you just want to come and pray, God, I thank you for your grace in my life. Thank you for pulling me back. But God, please protect my children. Don't let this be a generational sin in our family. Don't let them go down the path that I went down. Protect them. Protect their marriages. Protect their purity. I want this to be a spiritual moment for you. So would you stand together with me? I'm going to pray. Go ahead and stand. I'm going to pray and then we're going to begin to sing. And we're going to sing this hymn that has been sung for decades in moments like this, moments of decision. And the words we're going to sing, they express our heart. We're saying, just as I am, I'm coming. I'm not all fixed. Maybe my marriage is not all together. And maybe as an a teenager or a single adult, I've already made some decisions that are dishonoring, but I, I want to get this right. So you're just coming. Some of you are talking or praying with the pastor. Some of you are just kneeling to pray, but you're driving down a spiritual stake saying, God, I want to get this right just as I am here today. I'm not too far gone. I'm not too far gone by your grace, Lord, for your glory. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you'd use these moments just to continue our worship of you. Lord, that decisions that are made here would affect generations. Families would be changed. Legacies would be changed because of what takes place in these next few minutes. Lord, I pray for decisions of purity. I pray for decisions of commitment. Lord, I, I pray that you'd honor the par prayers of parents and grandparents who are lifting up those generations behind them. Lord, use this time. And most of all, Lord, I pray that someone will step out of their seats and into this aisle and take the hand of a pastor. Lord, or talk to someone online and and say, I need to be saved today. Lord, would you do this for your glory? Even now, in Jesus' name, amen. You step out, you come as we begin to sing.